Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week, Jonathan Bernstein wraps up the year in politics which included a recommendation to the Department of Justice that a former president be prosecuted. Politically, it would have been certainly a big deal if they had not recommended this after all that they did. And... I think it's perfectly okay to celebrate the sport as long as we are cognizant of what is happening around it. And this World Cup was the first time, I think, both of those things were happening simultaneously. Bobby Ghosh on lessons learned from a strange World Cup. First, though, to the markets. It was not a quiet week in markets. Midweek, the Bank of Japan tweaked its yield curve control mechanism a little out of the blue. Bloomberg Opinion's Marcus Ashworth joined me for an all-encompassing conversation about the year in markets. And then we revisited our conversation post-BOJ move. That's all in part two, so stay tuned. Marcus, what do you think were the biggest lessons of 2022 for market participants? Oh, um... I think the ability for people to forecast the future has been called dramatically into question because in every central bank in particular, some very smart economists, I'm sure, did predict a very unpleasant inflation. But I think the ability for people to divine what was going on this year got very rattled. And we were left in obviously a terrible year for most asset classes, a slight recovery towards the end, largely as the dollar level weakened. But, you know, we're left looking at ourselves thinking, you know, stocks, bonds, uh, apart from the old commodity, you know, pretty much everything went against us this year. Credit spreads widened. The worst is probably over, but it's just equally as hard to look forward into this year and say, OK, will inflation drop and drop quickly enough to actually change the thinking of central banks, which is probably not maybe to hike much more, but to keep rates at high levels for longer. And that's not going to be easy for bond markets or indeed stock markets to do too well next year. Yeah, and Marcus, it seemed like everything was trading in tandem, right? Was there anything different about how asset classes were traded this year? Well, I think it shows you that was people having to liquidate. And it didn't matter whether it was bonds or equities. Everyone realized inflation was bad for pretty much every asset class, bar, as I said, the occasional commodity. But even gold didn't do very well at times. So, I mean, you know, in that context, we saw you know, everything from crypto to particularly tech stocks, Meme stocks no longer were very meme And indeed, pretty much the safest things, long-end gilts and government bonds and different other types of normally very safe stuff got absolutely hammered. And the big lesson is that bonds were really not the safety place or inflation in bonds either, actually. Right, exactly. Now, do you anticipate that changing, that markets will go back to sort of trading each asset class on its own merits? Or are we looking at an environment now where traders are just doing things differently? I think it's a change environment, a less confident, much more volatile. I don't expect things overall to be as bad as 22 was, but I do think volatility is here to stay until we get much more clarity, perhaps, from central banks' view on inflation, not so much inflation itself. It's how central banks can feel confident they are not overdoing it by tightening too much, plunging into recession, which I think is a big risk. Clearly, the risk that central banks are most worried about is not doing enough now on inflation and having to come back 
and do more at a later time. They want to make sure they've won this battle. The price of that, very likely, is to be a recession, I'm afraid. There's various large central banks that come to mind. We could talk about <laughs> any of them, but are they on a collision path or working side by side? Well, I think clearly the European Central Bank has decided that as they were late, very late to the party, that they need to do more and there is a determined hawkish element driving that. The Fed, I think, is getting sort of towards the close of their peak. Maybe one or two more hikes. The same for the Bank of England, who are clearly sending some rubbish signals. But the one to really watch, I think, for next year, funnily enough, is going to be the Bank of Japan. Mm. Because they've done nothing. But, you know, some of their core inflation, particularly the thing they call super core inflation, is really quite high in Japanese terms, well above their 2% target. And that's, you know, a rare occasion. We haven't seen that for a few decades. So at some point, possibly by April, when they change the governor, we may see a, a shift in the Bank of Japan, that could have very big impacts across the rest of the world. Yeah, we are hearing that there is going to be a shift in policy, which would really be dramatic for the world because we haven't seen the Bank of Japan do that for a long time. In terms of inflation or recession being top of mind in the United States next year, which should it be? Well, clearly the Fed wants to battle the inflation genie back into the bottle uh, if it can and is prepared to risk recession. I mean, so far, the U.S. economy has been very impressive, particularly on the employment labor stats. The Fed are trying to do their best, but the markets are continuing to try and look for the pivot, indeed pricing in future rate cuts, which I don't think is at all the message that the Fed wants because they want to make sure financial conditions are tight enough to do the work. And the longer or the more the stock market stays up, the harder it is for them to play a victory. Marcus, if we move theatre for a moment, China's direction of travel, there's a lot of talk about this now. COVID seems to be ripping through the economy. Can China achieve a 5% growth rate next year? I don't think they can. I'm fascinated you should say that because... I mentioned Japan earlier. The two most important, should we say, inflation sets of numbers are Japan in the sense it's on the way up after being in deflation for so many years. I'm worried about that because it means Japan will have to hike rates and perhaps do some interesting things. Equally, China, the real worry on China is how quickly inflation is dropping there. It's mm. turning negative on the producer prices and it's plunging on the consumer level down to sort of, you know, one to two percent and headed lower. That's a real worry because that means that deflation is coming through in China. The Chinese economy is in a bad way and it doesn't seem to be much light at the end of the tunnel there as far as relief on that. So I think China is a real worry for us. And that feeds through into my further worry, which is why the oil price, probably the most important chart in the world, is lower. And that's, I think, very heavily China related. Well, let's dig into this a little bit more. How would China goose inflation, assuming that China would want to, I guess China would need to, in order to keep the labour market some way strong. I mean, the, the labour market is in tatters at the moment in China, it would seem, especially for younger people. Yeah, the youth employment, oh my word. I think that's the, the, the use the word goose there, and I think it's quite interesting because that's the problem with China, is that every time they come to a you know, clear evident problem here where they're They've got real property bubble having burst. They've got a real problem with employment, as you mentioned. And a general lack of, obviously, if any momentum in the economy is completely gone. So they, they need to pull on that credit lever and get money supply going and to breed inflation in some senses back in the system. But that they pull on this lever so many times and it's less and less effective. And I think that's big infrastructure plays or the usual boosting of huge building is not going to be effective or anything like as it once was. So that's the trouble. They've got a real issue here with you know, very aging demographics at the same time as they've got ballooning debt, maybe not on a government state level, which optically looks low, but across the rest of the economy, state banks, insurance companies, all sorts of other aspects, spreading the load, debt load far and wide. And that's something which is going to be very hard to get the same impact in the economy. That's why I'm not saying 
they don't get a better economy next year, they probably almost certainly will if they reopen. But the days of, you know, you mentioned 5%, that's possible. But getting up the 6 7 8% growth that we were used to uh, a few years ago, I think is going to be almost impossible. Marcus, what are the ramifications of your three major worries? You mentioned Japan, China and oil. Will we see ramifications in the bond markets? We may. I mean, clearly the issue, you know, it's looking at the US market to, to collate for everything. It's, it's heavily inverse in the sense that front-end yields, two-year yields are really quite, you know, interestingly priced at the moment. You can get, uh, you know, four and a quarter percent uh, for two-year money, and it's, it, that makes, uh, you know, equities look less attractive. But, you know, the, the yields in the long end are, are, are heavily lower. I, I think at the moment, too low. Mm. We're starting to see a bit of a correction, but below three and a half percent for 10-year yields in the U.S., is too low. And that's fed through now already. We start to see, you mentioned the Fed were hawkish, but really what, what not bond markets recently was that the ECB was much more hawkish as well. And that combined effect is starting to hit bond markets, which I think it got itself a little bit priced too low in yield. And I think they will start to, to move higher in yield. And that may well come with, uh, with economic recession finding up as well. You, normally you would think that bond yields would go, will go lower as the economy weakens. But in some senses, I think the markets are pricing ahead of themselves. And I fear that bond markets need a, a bit more of a shakeout. And I, I could see yields headed higher across the board. It sounds like an earnings recession is a foregone conclusion, given everything you've said. Yeah, it uh. is, isn't it? Uh, and I think that's the thing to watch is that, is that you know, where... Where earnings go is very important because, you know, let's face it, the pandemic was golden for many, many corporates. A lot of the price increases we've come through, I think people are starting to realise, are not just due to commodity prices, Mm. but people moving their prices up ahead of expected commodity rises. So, I mean, a lot of corporate profits have been very good the last year or two. The music stopped this year, and I think that's going to feed through. And I think that corporate profits is something to keep a very close eye on because that will give a lead indicated where credit spreads will go. And indeed, probably equities, because though values had a bit of a comeback against growth, techs obviously had a worrying time and things like energy stocks done very well this year. It's going to be much harder work, I think, in 23. Not to say the stock market won't do perfectly okay, but it's not going to be very much more a stock pickers market Mm. rather than just paying momentum. The UK obviously has had a huge amount of political turmoil in the last year. What happens, (laughs) (laughs) to say the least, what happens next? A little bit of stability? Oh, all this government is currently trying to do is do as little as possible at the moment. I mean, the media are all screaming, where is Rishi Sunak? I tell you exactly, he's hiding. <laughs> um, and, and a little bit of calm is very much uh, appreciated at the moment. You know, he's more of a technocrat, uh, loves a spreadsheet and uh, wants to get some competency back in. It's the only chance they have to, you know, uh, which looks pretty slim, of, of retaining uh, any form of power in two years' time they have to have the next election. So expect more of the same. You know, we are going to get uh, you know, very uh, tight focused on keep trying to get one or two things they can get through. There are some promising signs on, on some financial reforms, but we've got to see delivery. This is what we've not seen for the last few years. There's a lot of, you know, every week there's a new policy and yet nothing comes out the back of it. And I think that's what the current government is going to try and calm things down and at least uh, not make things any worse. And that's it's about, probably about as best as we can hope for. Marcus Ashworth continues with us, including fresh comments following the Bank of Japan's move to widen the trading band on the 10-year bond yield just hours after we spoke. This is Bloomberg Opinion.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. And back to my conversation now with Marcus Ashworth. Hours after we first spoke this week, the Bank of Japan announced a decision to tweak its yield curve control mechanism and allow long-term yields rise to around 0.5%, double the previous limit. The BOJ kept its 10-year yield and short-term rate unchanged at zero and minus 0.1% respectively. Governor Haruhiko Kuroda said the shift wasn't a rate hike and was intended to enhance bond market functionality. Although the government bond interest rates will widen as a result of this measure, we believe that the effects of monetary easing will spread more smoothly. The BOJ intends to aim for price stability by increasing the sustainability of this monetary easing. It's not the beginning of an exit strategy. Traders were caught off guard. The yen strengthened 4% in the immediate aftermath, and speculation began over what the next move might be and whether it would wait until Haruhiko Kuroda's successor takes over at the Bank of Japan in April. I called Marcus back. I emailed you and you said, wow, amazing, these guys have learned. It's going to cost them a fortune, but I guess it's better to take slugs of pain than for it to go properly bang. Did it go properly bang overnight? Uh, Well, I mean, it was clearly a very clever move to perhaps shock the markets, surprise the markets, particularly for foreigners who may have unwound their positions ahead of the Christmas New Year period. Certainly the topics and Nikkei stock indices uh, took it quite badly. Interesting to see the divergence. Nikkei down 2.5%. The topics, the much wider index, only down 1.5%. That's because the banks are in the topics index. We're not seeing too much of a reaction here in the U.S. either. No, and that's the brilliant bit. I mean, you can see that, uh, you know, the U.S. is up, U.K. is up. But, I mean, clearly, you know, the banks did very well. And that's principally because this steepening the yield curve caused by the widening of the 10-year yield ban up to 50 basis points only got up to 40 basis points. So, again, the bomb reaction wasn't as big as it could have been. But it means the net interest margin for banks is wider because the yield curve is steeper. We saw that feature to U.S. Treasury bonds. We saw a knock-on effect to European bonds. But as far as Japan's concerned, the yen, you know, the currency gained about 4% to the dollar. You know, it's been handled pretty well. I would think the Bank of Japan would consider this a win. It doesn't get away from the fact that things are going to have to be addressed before or by April 
when the current governor, Kuroda, steps down and a new person will replace him, and almost certainly we're under pressure to do even more. The best thing for the Japanese is that will probably just as when all of their new central banks will be stopping hiking and maybe even starting to think about cutting, which means the amount they will have to hike will be much less. Exactly, and the yen strengthened, as you say, 4%, which will help importers. Will it mean much for the Japanese economy, this particular move? No, but uh, clearly they are ringing the end of the bell to their aggressive inflation, breathing in, boosting of inflation, beating of deflation. This is nearing an end, and I think slowly but steadily we will see a uh, move away from negative rates and higher bond yields, and that will have some impact, but it's the first early bit of pain. Bloomberg Opinions, Marcus Ashworth there. I also got some reaction out of Asia. Paul Dobson is executive editor for Asia Markets at Bloomberg, and he gave me his thoughts after the market had settled. We discussed these comments from Middle Katecha, head of emerging market strategy at TD Bank. It has had global reverberations. It's hard to put this back in the bag again, and I think it is a start of more steps going forward. So we could see further band widening. We could see a dismantlement of the band altogether. What I do think, though, is that Governor Kuroda is probably not in a rush to change things now in terms of the policy rate and YCC 0% target. That may not happen until he leaves in April next year and we get a new Bank of Japan governor. But look, the reality is that BOJ was fighting against an environment where global central banks have tightened relatively sharply. Uh, last week, we had a whole bunch of hawkish messages from central banks, ECB, for example, out hawking the Fed even. And it's very hard to contend with that and continued pressure on the top of the yield curve target as well. So they have no choice in a way, but I don't think this is a one and done deal. I think there's going to be more to come. And it does spell more bad news for global bonds. Japan holds about a trillion dollars of treasuries still. So we could still see more selling pressure from Japanese investors. So, Paul, you heard there what Middle Katecha said. Hard to put this back in the box. How do Japanese investors react in the new year? Will it unsettle markets again? Yeah, I think this is a very significant shift for global markets and for global investors as well. The Bank of Japan has been that last bastion of negative, very low interest rate. And the fact that it's easing off just that little bit, signaling a slight shift in policy is going to be enough to get investors very excited. Remember, Japanese investors have $3 trillion worth of assets Mm. all over the world. And if they see that their home markets are suddenly looking more appealing, and they start bringing that money back to Japan, it's going to have two effects. It's going to be very supportive for the yen. It's also going to be a downside for all of those sectors where they've got their funds. So not just U.S. Treasuries, which is obviously a big one, but also government bonds of France, for example, or Australia, where they own a high concentration of the assets there. So that's something that we're going to be watching very carefully into the new year. It should be a sort of slow and gradual shift rather than a massive, short, sharp move as well. So it could influence global markets significantly over a period of time into the new year. As you say, you mentioned $3 trillion worth of holdings outside of Japan, about a trillion of that. So at least a third of that is in U.S. Treasuries. And surely some of that will move back to Japan at a time when the Federal Reserve is also changing its relationship with the bond market. So how do U.S. investors react? I think the U.S. investors will be very cautious about the idea that there could be outflows from Japanese investors, which we've already seen for most of this year, but as well as a slight shift in the yield differentials, hedging costs are still very high as well for Mm. 
those Japanese investors taking on exchange rate risks. So they probably don't want to do that. And so they may continue to repatriate funds, the alternative being to lay on extra FX hedges and to hold on to those securities. So it could be that there's more outflows, which means it could be that there's extra pressure to the downside on U.S. government debt, higher borrowing costs which could make it all the more painful for the U.S. Treasury as it seeks to refinance that over the coming year. Yeah, the currency moves are going to be fascinating to watch as well. The other thing to remember is that the global pile of bonds now at sub-zero yields, it's under $700 billion, which sounds like a lot, but the peak two years ago was $18.4 trillion worth. I mean, I know these are all sort of just numbers, right? But it makes a big difference at the same time. Yeah, this is my favorite uh, topic of conversation, Bonnie. Um, you know, finally, fixed income assets are offering a positive return wherever you are in the world. And that's a really big difference to what we've seen over the past 10 years. So in general, it's going to make bonds a more viable prospect for long-term investors. It's going to make people more confident wherever they are in the world that uh, they can have decent earnings on their bonds, on their fixed income portfolio. So after the pretty huge losses that we've seen this year, it should brighten the outlook for debt in general into 2023. How will that be seen in the market, Paul? I mean, it seems like we've had correlations that have been extraordinarily odd for many years. Now that bonds are actually, you know, returning positive returns, will we see those correlations Mm -hmm. change? Yeah, I think there's something people really need to watch very carefully next year. This year, extraordinarily, we've seen stocks and bonds moving very closely together mm. and a very tight correlation, which is terrible if you know, you're know you a 60-40 investor. It's terrible if you're a long-only investor. It's terrible if you're a pension fund and have your money tied up in stocks and bonds because you get no shelter if stocks sell off because bonds are selling off at the same time. Yeah. So it would be really interesting to see whether that relationship breaks and fragments next year or whether it holds. There's a big argument that in a higher inflation universe, the correlation between stocks and bonds stays positive. On the other hand, we're very used to, you know, risk on, risk off. Stocks go up, bonds go down and the other way around as well. So we'll see whether that reestablishes itself as the key trading pattern as we move through next year. Paul Dobson, executive editor for Asia Markets based in Singapore. Stay tuned. Wrapping up the year in politics next with Jonathan Bernstein. This is Bloomberg Opinion. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. As this Congress wraps up and we have a small respite before 2024 campaigning begins in earnest, I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's Jonathan Bernstein about developments concerning former President Donald Trump and the scorecard for this Congress. So, Jonathan, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol did formally recommend to the DOJ that former President Donald Trump be criminally prosecuted now for violating four federal laws. Does this change anything? We sort of knew this was going to happen. Yeah, you know, it was expected. The fact that it happened could make some difference. You know, one of the jobs of the committee was to influence neutral journalists, mainstream journalists who are not partisan, who have a heavy tendency to want to say that both sides did whatever it is bad. Mm. And just to underscore how extraordinary what happened, that what Trump did in office really was something that no president has ever come close to doing before, even you know that it's much worse than what Richard Nixon, for example, would have been impeached and removed for if he hadn't resigned. I think that every piece of that matters. It also matters that the committee gathered a huge amount of information, which now goes to the Justice Department and to the special prosecutor and makes their job a lot easier. So I do think that politically, it would have been certainly a big deal if they had not recommended this after all that they did. And after everything we've heard. So the executive summary says that Trump, more than any other person, was responsible, literally, it literally says this, for the violent mob. Does this take the air out of the bubble for Trump for 2024? For example, who's going to come out and defend him? We haven't heard much yet. Yeah, I, I think we have heard you know House Republicans saying, well, the committee is not legitimate in the first place, which is not true. It's hard to tell going forward how all of Trump's legal liabilities will affect his chances of winning the nomination. There are a lot of Republicans at the voter level who like Donald Trump, and that's probably not going to change. What's not clear and has not been clear really from the get-go, but certainly as we look at 2024, is how many of these people who like Donald Trump also will like other candidates and may find other candidates more appealing. Mm. And, you know, it's hard to tell. There certainly are some Republicans who say, if you hit our candidate, that's the one that we will go to, no matter how legitimate the hit is, because we'll assume it's not. But there probably are also Republicans who are saying, you know, this is somebody who lost the popular vote the first time around, barely won in the electoral college, who lost everything the second time around, whose candidates that he pushed lost in 2018 and 2022. And they may start thinking maybe it's time for somebody different. How his legal situation fits into that, it's very hard to know until we actually get to the point where people are voting or we'll see what happens if he's indicted, if he comes to trial there's a good chance he won't come to trial before the Iowa caucuses, which are only 14 months away. 
Right, exactly. What would his defence look like? I mean, you mentioned one of the pillars there, which would be to discredit the committee itself. I presume there will be attacks on some of the star witnesses like Cassidy Hutchinson, Hope Hicks and so on. But, I mean, is that all there is in terms of a defence? You know, I think that on some of this stuff, the charges are unusual. And one of the disadvantages for Trump at this stage is he doesn't have a whole lot of experienced lawyers. And a lot of experienced lawyers don't want to work for him because he has a habit of incriminating his lawyers. Um, or at least trying to. He also has a habit of not paying his lawyers. So how much quality legal help he'll get is harder to tell. There's also, you know, he's under a lot of legal trouble. The Mar-a-Lago documents case, which the federal special prosecutor is also handling, both that and the January 6th stuff, that seems more open and shut from what I can tell. You know, again, not a lawyer, but that's sort of a normal kind of prosecution that has been done many times and seems more straightforward mm. than some of these more complex things where, you know, are you figuring out how to charge the former president with trying to overturn an election? You know, there are specific statutes, there are prosecutions that have happened in the past, but so he's got that. He's got his business in trouble in New York. He's got the Georgia state prosecution yes. over interfering with the presidential election there. So he's got a lot of these things going on, which is a lot of pressure. The other problem for him, and we'll see how much of a problem it is, the House committee recommended prosecution for others. And if that's what happens, some of those people may want to cut deals, which right. could also Don't work out. Mark Meadows and four lawyers, including Rudy Exactly. And, and so, and there could be more people that were not covered by the House referrals that the special prosecutor may go after. So we'll see about that also, whether that makes Trump's position even more tenuous. Have you any sense of how far the DOJ will go in trying to protect its credibility in terms of not wanting to be perceived as partisan? Is that still an issue? You know, I think both the attorney general and the president want things to be seen as not partisan. Mm. So part of what's important about the January 6th committee, to the extent that they established a public record, and even though, you know, it was mostly Democrats and all Trump opponents who are on the committee, the evidence is the evidence to a large extent. That will make it easier for Justice Department to act. And having a special counsel brought in makes it easier to act without them worrying about that it seems partisan. Uh, You know, at some point, there's also the flip side of that, which is if you don't indict someone when you have a strong case against them that everybody knows about, you know, that's not equal justice either. So to the extent that the goal of the committee was to make it seem like the only reason you would not indict him is because he was president. Jonathan, what do you make of the whole Carrie Lake case? What's going to happen there? A state judge has now said she can present evidence that electoral improprieties caused her to lose the election for governor of Arizona, but she has to prove there was intentional misconduct. Sideshow? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the fascinating thing from the 2022 elections is that most of the candidates, even ones who campaigned on falsely claiming there was fraud in 2020, most of them accepted the results. Most of them acted like normal politicians. They congratulated the winner. They conceded the election. There are a few exceptions, with Lake being one of them. Mm. It was not that close an election. It was close, but it was not that close. Of course, there's nothing wrong with fighting for your rights in court. Candidates have always felt that if there was something in very close elections, you go to court and you try to push where you can. So this is a little more than that, and it's already been certified, so it would be very unusual for her to actually win in court. That's, I would think, extremely unlikely. It's hard to tell how deep-rooted this election denial business is. 
that's certainly a case where it does exist separate from the Trump example. Yeah, separate from sort of playing at electoral denial or what have you. There's a Congress that's finishing up now. The legacy of it, Jonathan, will we see anything done by year end in terms of the Electoral Count Act or anything like that? And, you know, just generally, what will be the legacy of this Congress? Uh, the Electoral Count Act is included in the omnibus bill, the big spending bill that they're doing at the end of Congress, that full spending for this fiscal year. It's been a very productive Congress, to some extent unusually so. The first Congress during Barack Obama's presidency was also quite productive, but the one during Bill Clinton's first Congress, and and of course Congress doesn't belong to the president, but just the shorthand. I hate using that shorthand, but certainly as a contrast to Donald Trump's first two years, when that was a unified Republican government, and that Congress, although they did pass a major tax cut bill, did very little else. And it was probably most remembered for John McCain killing, with his big thumbs down, their attempt to do health care yes. legislation. And then it ended with a government shutdown. At this point of that Congress, they had shut down the government, and it stayed shut down until Democrats took over the House of Representatives and quickly cut a deal with the still Republican Senate, and Trump went along. So I think that you know you have a lot of important bills that passed. It's not for me to say whether they're good bills or not. You had major spending to fight the pandemic to boost the economy, which some people think is what gave us inflation, and some people say, nah, inflation was going to happen either way. So you can argue that all you want. We had the infrastructure bill. We had gun legislation for the first time in, in a long time. There were just a lot of pieces of legislation passed and quite a few bipartisan pieces of legislation. There were some things which got done by Democratic votes only, using reconciliation in the Senate. But there were a lot of things that passed by defeating a Republican filibuster by peeling off 10 or more Republicans, such as legislation defending marriage rights, which just passed a few weeks ago in the Senate. So I think it's going to be looked at as a very productive Congress. And, you know, for Democrats, it was successful. There were a lot of Democratic priorities that didn't get done, such as their entire voting rights agenda and attempts to codify Roe v. Wade. But there were a lot of Democratic priorities that did get done. And Republicans in the Senate turned out to be willing to cut deals, although Republicans in the House were not. Well, we will have a chat with you early in the new year about priorities for the next Congress, because believe it or not, it's changing over already. Yeah, January 3rd, and we'll see what whether we get a speaker on January 3rd or not. Bloomberg Opinions, Jonathan Bernstein. The 2022 World Cup was riven with moral questions from years before it played out. The matches themselves were pretty glorious, I think it's fair to say, with surprise coming after surprise. But how to separate the moral questions surrounding the games from the sport itself was a recurring question. I asked Bloomberg Opinion's Bobby Ghosh about the thorny questions plaguing many spectators. Talk to us about this World Cup. It definitely rewarded those who stuck with it, but it was very difficult to watch a lot of the games and not have a niggling feeling about human rights, all the foreign workers that were exploited during the building of the stadiums and all of the protests that were going on in Iran at the same time. How should we feel about this World Cup? There are two aspects to it, and one was what was taking place on the field of soccer, Mm -hmm. probably the best World Cup of my lifetime, Mm -hmm. and the drama, the Cinderella run of Morocco, the crashing of great expectations with big European teams. And of course, Leo Messi, the greatest player of all time, possibly finally getting his hands on the biggest prize. That was all taking place on the green turf. Off the turf were bigger questions, political questions, questions of morals and ethics. 
This was the first time, I think, in a long, long time when these questions were asked in conjunction with probably the greatest show on earth. These were not questions asked four years ago when the previous World Cup was held in Russia, another country with highly questionable human rights records, a country that at that time was occupying Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine. These were not questions asked going way back in the World Cup history in 1978 when the World Cup was held in Argentina, then ruled by a military junta. Yes. I, for one, welcome the questions being asked, even if it might appear to be hypocritical in the context of history. If going forward, we always ask these questions in every World Cup, then I think so much the better. We shouldn't kid ourselves that sport can completely be divorced from the reality of the society around us. You mentioned Iran. That is the best definition of how sport and the political reality around it clash. In Iran, you have sports people who are being jailed, who are being tortured, who may face the death sentence because they have dared to express a political opinion. Um, that was an extraordinary stance, wasn't it, on the part of Iran's football team? Yes, it was. And to some degree, it was forced on them by fans demanding a more lean-forward posture by their sporting heroes. If the fans want their sporting heroes to speak up on important political topics of the day then sporting authorities should let it happen, I think. You mentioned that it was a little bit hypocritical that perhaps we were asking these questions now when it comes to a Middle Eastern country, and we haven't been asking them about other major countries. That's something we should think about, right? Yes, we should. And we should now, going forward, learn the lessons. Let's not be hypocritical the next time. Let's admit that it was hypocritical, but then let's resolve going forward to say, hereafter, whenever a major sporting event takes place in a country that has questionable human rights records, that mistreats its own people, we will step up and we will hold those countries to account just as we have done with Qatar. Should FIFA have done more? I know FIFA is not a body that anybody really has all of that much respect for. At the same time, they rule world soccer. There's not much you can do without the backing of FIFA, and FIFA didn't make any kind of a stance. Well, FIFA has let itself down, let down the sport, let down the fans. As you say, this is not new. FIFA has always been this way. The IOC has always been this way. But you know what? Sports stars, football players, soccer players themselves, are now talking over FIFA's head quite often and, and making themselves heard. Mm. And more power to them, I say. If the institutions won't speak up, then we should embrace individuals who do it and welcome it and encourage it when it happens. And it was a phenomenal final. As you say, possibly the best match of our lifetimes. As a fan of, of Leo Messi and as an Argentina partisan myself, this was the best possible result and best outcome. But you know what? It was an amazing final. And frankly, whoever had won it, I think I would have embraced that result. Is it okay to enjoy these matches, the camaraderie that we see between teams sometimes after one loses and one wins? I think it's perfectly okay to celebrate the sport as long as we are cognizant of what is happening around it. And this World Cup was the first time I think both of those things were happening simultaneously. Bloomberg Opinions, Bobby Ghosh. That's it for this week. Don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please do send in your thoughts and opinions. Email vquinn at bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. Cool. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.